Well, last week, Pastor Andrew got us off to a great start in the book of Ruth. Uh, you've heard uh, the text we'll be looking at this morning read, and uh, we want to dive into this text because it teaches us many things. And as Pastor Andrew pointed out last week, uh, the book of Ruth has these different personages, these different personalities as they interact with one another. We've got Naomi, the mother-in-law. We have Ruth and Orpah, the daughter-in-laws. We, we, we'll, we'll be reintroduced to Boaz next week. All of these uh, characters in the story, as they relate to one another, uh, it, not only is it a powerful human story of human love and how that ought to be and how... Uh, how love and the costliness of love and the commitments of love need to be lived out in human relationships. But all of it is providing a bigger picture of God's love for us. And that is the genius of the book of Ruth. Uh, Absolutely, uh, the the writer of this book, and we don't know who it is exactly, is just a genius at putting together this piece of literature that provides a poignant uh, story of commitment and how we need to respond to tragedy, but in the midst of that gives us a picture of the greater love that God has for us that we need to get a hold of. We pick up the story where uh, Naomi has had a series of horrific tragedies. I don't think we can overestimate the tragedies that have occurred in Naomi's life. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She She moved to Moab away from Israel. She's now in a foreign land, bereft uh, of her protection, bereft of her inheritance, bereft of land, bereft of a, of a way to provide for herself. And now there are three women in Moab, in the middle of, of, a, of a man's world, a patriarchal society, who are not protected and with no means of support, no means of income, no means of retirement or social security or any of that. They are in a bad situation. A horrific situation. And Naomi, to her credit, she doesn't have everything right, although I want to be uh, protective of Naomi because she's been through this horrific series of of losses. She tells her daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, to go back to Moab, which was a tremendous self-sacrifice. She's going to go back alone, and she says, stay here in Moab. This is where you might be able to be married. remarried. This is where you might have some hope in this world. And Orpah leaves, finally. She begins to go back to Moab, but Ruth clings to her mother-in-law. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 15. And in this section from 15 to verse 22, what we see here are three realities of love. Three realities of what love really is, and that's what we need to grab a hold of. We need to grab a hold of each of these three realities. And in fact, you really can't grab a hold of one of the realities of love without grabbing hold of all of them because they all fit together. So let's take a look at these three realities of love. The first is this. True love is extremely costly. Okay? True love, real love, is absolutely, unbelievably costly. If you really love something or someone, it's going to cost you immensely. And we see this in the book of Ruth. And this is important for us to see because we live in a culture where love, even the word love, is, is, is confusing, right? 
You're supposed to love your neighbor and you're supposed to love your spouse and you're supposed to love your children and then you love ice cream. You know, and you love your sports team and you love, I mean, it's just strange, right? The same word is used in all of those contexts. The other issue for us, particularly in our culture, is love is somewhat viewed as transactional. I will love you. I will care for you, but you better provide a few things for me. Okay, this is sort of the contemporary version even of marriage, right? Or, 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 or some kind of union between a man and a woman. I, I'm, I'm in this as long as you are meeting my needs, but the minute you stop meeting my needs, I'm out. And in fact, even in our contemporary culture, the worst thing that can ever happen to you is to be trapped in a relationship where you're loving and giving and not getting anything back is viewed as, well, that's, that's horrific, and certainly, there are times in a relationship where tough love needs to, be, uh, needs to be enacted, of course. But true love is costly. Let's look at the, the, the costly love, particularly that Ruth demonstrates. Verse 15, her, the Orpah has gone, is going back to, to Moab, and, and, and Naomi interjects, the mother-in-law, and she says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Naomi is using some peer pressure. Go back home, she says. That's where your only hope is. But Ruth uh, says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And then what Ruth does is she, <laughs> she, she's going to commit herself to her mother-in-law in a profound way. It's, it's actually poetry. It's that beautiful. It's actually a series of six statements, so to speak, sort of grouped together, two statements apiece in three couplets to form sort of this Hebrew poetry. And let me unpack a little bit of this uh, poem, a little bit of this poetry to describe the costliness that Ruth's love uh, engenders here. This is the first couplet. She says, for where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. What Ruth is saying to her mother-in-law is, I'm going to be with you. Where you go, I'm going to be there. Where you stop, where you lodge, where you put up for the night, I will be with you. Ruth is committing herself to her mother-in-law and to be with her through life's and all of its challenges. And why this is so costly, folks, is that Naomi has nothing to offer Ruth. She's a bitter woman, and she's a woman with no inheritance, no land, no means of support, She's got nothing to give to Ruth, and Ruth has everything to, to, to lose by attaching herself to her mother-in-law. Ruth is going to uh, lose her, her family in Moab. She's going to lose her religion in Moab. She's going to lose uh, her means of support, her, her father, her parents, her brothers who would provide protection. She's going to attach herself to this bitter old woman, her mother-in-law, and now she has no means of protection, no means of financial support, no land to speak of. And she's going to be a foreigner in Israel, which means she is going to be very vulnerable in a man-centered, man-dominated culture. In a very real sense, Ruth throws her life away from a human perspective to attach herself to care for this woman, her mother-in-law, Naomi. 
Now I'll get to the middle, uh, the, the, the middle couplet and at the next point. But then notice what she says in verse 17, where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. In other words, the commitment is I, 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 where, where you die, I will die. She promises to be with Naomi till Naomi dies, but then even beyond Naomi's death, right? Where you die, I will die. I'm going to die in this foreign country. I'm going to die in Israel. I'm going to die. But, but then even after you die, there I will be buried. In other words, I am going to stay in your city. I'm going to stay in your hometown, Naomi. My commitment to you actually goes beyond your death to stay in this new place, this foreign place. That is the level of outrageous commitment of love, the costly outrageous costliness of Ruth's love for her mother-in-law. Now, I've been debating all week whether I would share a mother-in-law joke. It's just interesting. It's her mother-in-law. Now, a lot of you have good relationships with your mother-in-law. And my wife is a mother-in-law, so I'm a little bit nervous about saying this. But I thought I would share this because it's, it's just sort of stereotypical, Right? The mother-in-law. It's always a tenuous relationship. It can be. So here's my little story, little humorous aside. A big game hunter went on safari with his wife and mother-in-law. One night the couple woke to find the mother gone. In a clearing not far from the camp, they came upon a chilling sight. The mother-in-law was backed up against a tree with a snarling lion facing her. And the wife said, what are we going to do? And the husband says, nothing. The lion got himself into this mess. He can get himself out of it. Sorry, mother-in-laws. You get a bad rap and I'm sorry. There's something more going on here. The costliness of Ruth's sacrificial love for her mother-in-law. After... Ruth's poem that she shares with her, with Naomi, where you die, I will die, verse 17, there I will be buried. Then, then Ruth actually brings a sort of an accountability to God to fulfill this uh, costly commitment of love. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. She basically saying, God, hold me accountable for this commitment of love I've made to Naomi. Verse 18, and when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. It's interesting. Ruth has made the most outrageous, most sacrificial commitment. She throws her life away for Naomi, and Naomi can't even say thank you. Now, we don't know all that she may have said here, but it's true. When you minister and serve someone who is suffering as much as Naomi is suffering, You find that suffering people often, their focus is so narrow because of their suffering. They can't even see the people that are helping them or thank them. And of course, this gets even more profound when you go down to verse 20. When when Naomi comes into the city, let's look at verse 19. The two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. So now they're coming home. Naomi's coming to her home. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. It's been 10 years since Naomi was in town. And the whole town is abuzz. Naomi has come back. And the women said, is this Naomi? Naomi's not speaking. She said to them, do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. 
Then verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? And you think about what's happening here. Naomi is certainly feeling the, the, the losses that she's experiencing and she's trying to work out her relationship with God in the midst of her losses. But notice what she says. I went away full. I had a, I had a, I had a husband. I had two sons. I'm coming back empty. But is she coming back empty? Ruth, her daughter-in-law, is standing right next to her. She's telling the whole town, oh yeah, I, I, I went away full and now I'm coming back empty. And Ruth is right next to her. Who has to listen to this? And yet there Ruth is, following her commitment, doing her costly love to her mother-in-law, who's obviously struggling, unacknowledged, unthanked, but simply following through with the costly love that she has committed herself to doing for Naomi. Just a few words about this costly love that we need to be engaged in. I think this is where a lot of our, if we're honest with ourselves, this is where a lot of our relationships break down in the family, in the church, in our neighborhood, is that we're just not prepared to make the kind of costly commitment of love that the biblical view of love requires of us. We're not prepared to love people in this sacrificial way. The reality is all love, true love, okay, not the transactional love that happens in our culture and which is probably happening a lot during Valentine's Day, right? You know, there's a lot of chocolate sold, right? A lot of cards and a lot of, a lot of expressions of love. But true love is always about substituting yourself for the sake of the other person. What, Na- what Ruth has to do is she has to take the bitterness of her mother-in-law. She has to take the destitution of her mother-in-law. She has to take the, the, the lack of future that her mother-in-law has, and she has to receive all of that. And and in return, what Ruth has to do is to give her mother-in-law care and comfort and companionship and try to eke out a living for her. There's a substitution that takes place in real love where we take on the problems of the person we're loving and, and the challenges of the person that we're loving. And we take upon them ourselves and then turn around and have to give and give and give and give. That's the kind of costly love that Ruth is doing and the kind of costly love that we are called to do. Well, that's a little too convicting. So let's move on to the second reality of love. The second reality of love is this. True love must be centered in God himself plus nothing. Let me go back to the little poem that that Ruth uh, expresses to her mother-in-law. Back to verse 16, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. 
verse 17, where you die, I will die there. I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. This was her commitment of the costly love, but you got to notice the middle pair of words, the middle, um, the, 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 the middle couplet. And that middle couplet would have been in the middle of the poem, which means that's the focus and then the center of that commitment. Notice what Ruth says. She says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. What Ruth is expressing here to her mother-in-law is Ruth has come to believe in the God of Israel, the God of the universe. She's, she's begun to believe and understand who this God is at some point, And she says, this God is going to be my God. I am going to orient my life around God, his loyal love, his covenant love, his his hesed. I, I will orient my life around him and him alone. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Now, we, we look at this, and I think we look at it through American eyes. We, we, we don't see what a massive uh, situation this is for, for Ruth. I mean, we were Americans, right? We think, well, we're individuals. You know, we're connected to our family, but our family shouldn't control us. And it's up to us to find out what we believe. And we're all free to believe who we want to believe. That was not the case in this culture. To leave your family's God, to leave your family, period, to move away from your home country, to move into Israel, but then to change God, so to speak. Because in in Moab, they had a a series of gods. It was polytheistic. She must be in the, the sort of the main God. She was saying, my allegiance is no longer my home or the gods that I grew up with. I am changing that allegiance and I'm throwing myself under the care of the God of Israel, the God of the Bible the true God. She's acknowledging that he is God alone. And it's interesting in Ruth 2, we'll get there next week. Uh, One of the townspeople, Boaz, we're going to meet next week, basically acknowledges that Ruth has come uh, to the God of Israel, the Lord, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Ruth has now oriented herself around God and God alone. And that is why I believe she is able to love her mother-in-law at the kind of cost that it will take to love Naomi. You see, you think about this. Ruth has no other earthly uh, uh, gifts or, or, or earthly resources to help her with her life. She's moving to Israel, her hope for marriage, a family, an inheritance, nil. She's attaching herself to Naomi who has nothing for her. But what does Ruth have? She has the God of Israel. She has the God of the Bible. She has God. She, she's putting herself under the, the, the wings of, of the almighty God. And because she has God, she has everything that she needs to love in this costly manner. And this is the rub for us, is it not? I think for a lot of us, including myself at times, we love God. I mean, you're here today. Many of you are online this morning. You like God, you love God even. You worship God, right? But if God doesn't give you X, Y, or Z, whatever that is for you, you're a a little bit less committed to that God. 
In other words, you, 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 you want to worship God as long as God fixes enough of your life, gives you enough of the, the good things that you hope for in this life. If God will do enough of that, you're all in with God. But the minute God removes all of those things that you think you need, you can't be satisfied with God. You can't be content with God plus nothing. You can't be content with God and, and at peace with God. And you can't have joy with God plus nothing. But Ruth does. That's all she's got. She's got God and a bitter mother-in-law. That's it. But because she has this God, because she has enough of an understanding of this loyal loving, covenant-keeping God. She's grabbed onto him and she's got her hands and her grip on him, which allows her to love Naomi and take all of the risks that she takes to be with this older, bitter person, Naomi. I think it'd be interesting for each of us to think about this. Is there something that God needs to give you that, for you to be content with God? Is there something that you, you, you want so badly and you've been praying so much for it and, 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 and if God can't redeem it or can't fix it or can't give it to you, you've got a problem with God, you're not making true love. Your true love is not centered in God himself plus nothing. Put it another way, can you be satisfied with God and that's all you had? I've mentioned this couple before, Stan and Flo Huntington. They were older couple. They were in their late 70s when I met them. My dad was a pastor of a church in Miami. Stan and Flo came to our church. Stan and Flo had lost their entire family in a plane crash where all of their children were killed. The grandchildren were killed. It was horrific. Stan had a lung disease that made it very difficult for him to function. He had to retire early. Financially, they barely made it. They, did not, they weren't doing you know, that well financially. There was nothing earthly in their life that was particularly was sweet and, and, and beautiful. But these were the two people, as, as a young kid looking up to them, knowing how much they had lost, they had God and that was enough. They were the most joyous, most contented, most, most on fire people for God I've ever met. And yet God in his providence had, had allowed many things to be taken from them. Joyful, not bitter, content. Florence Huntington was a she was a real card. I, my, my dad's church, we, the, the church we, when we met him, we met in a building that had no windows, okay? Um, it was actually a restaurant bar. We, we had to clean out all the wine bottles before church. It was an interesting setup. A little bit different here. I feel guilty in this, this beautiful room almost sometimes back to my childhood. But one day we were in this dark room with no windows and the lights went out. So now we're in complete pitch darkness. We can't see anything. Florence was playing the piano, uh, and she didn't play pretty, that well, but she played as well as she could, you know, being in her late 70s. And she's trying to play. She can't see the music. The song stops. We're in complete darkness. We don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, Florence talks. She goes, everybody raise your hands up. 
we weren't really a charismatic church, but you know, but people started doing it, you know. Okay. Raise your hands up. And then she goes, Many hands make light work. But that was Florence. She had lost her kids and her grandkids. Her husband's health was bad. Their retirement was not all I'm sure it would, they meant it to be. But they had God. And because they had God, they had everything they needed to be joyful, content, satisfied. And they were the most joyous people. And that is what we see here with Ruth. She's able to love Naomi because God is the center of her life. The center of her hope. The center of her joy. The center of her satisfaction. And because God is at the center of all that and has filled Ruth up with his great love, she's able to turn around and love someone who can't love her back. Naomi at present. So that's the second part, the second reality of love. Let's look at the third reality. The third reality is this. True love is a mystery, okay? To some degree, it's a mystery. Let me unpack that for us. Ruth has come back with Naomi. They enter the town. The whole town is a buzz. And Naomi is struggling. Verse 20, she said to them, because she's not introducing herself. She's coming in quietly. She doesn't want to say too much. Verse 20, she said, don't call me Naomi. Her name meant pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter for the almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. In other words, she is upset with how God has treated her. She believes that God is sovereign and she still believes in God, but she believes that God is after her. God, God's, God's coming after her. Verse 21, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Of course, she says that even with, with Ruth right next to her, but that's where she is. She's struggling. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? What Naomi is struggling with is what we all struggle with. You get enough losses in your life. You get enough unanswered prayer in your life. You get enough trials in your life. And you're going to be tempted to do one of two things or maybe both things. You're either going to be tempted to believe that God is not in control anymore you know, maybe he'd like to help me, but he just can't. Or number two, you're going to start to believe that God doesn't care about me. He doesn't really love me. You're either going to deep six his sovereignty or you're going to deep six his love. That's what we do. Now, I want to be fair to, to, to Naomi. She has had massive sense of loss. And it's not like she completely disbelieves God. She acknowledges that God is sovereign. She kind of thinks God is after her, which I think is a distorted view of God, honestly. Nowhere in the book do we get the sense that, that God has brought all these calamities necessarily because they went to Moab or her children, her sons married Moabite women. I mean, God may not have been excited about that and may, maybe that wasn't right, but the narrator is ambivalent about that. I think the, 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 the narrator of the book of Ruth sort of acknowledges that, that God works by grace, not by works. So if your life is going real well... <laughs> You can't just sit there and say, well, I've earned it, okay? I must have earned all this from God. And if your life is going badly, you can't just simply say, well, I must have messed it up. That's why I'm being punished. That's not how God works. He works by grace. 
So if you're doing well, you may be obeying God. That's great, but that's grace. It's an unearned gift. If you're doing poorly, yeah, you may have sin in your life, but, but God is dealing with you by grace, not simply based on your performance. The reality is for all of us, if God gave us what we actually deserved, your life would be going far worse than it is today, no matter how many trials you're facing. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy. Naomi has a distorted. She's bitter, understandably so. And what I would say about Naomi that I would encourage some of you to do is because some of you might be just where Naomi is. You're frustrated with God. You feel like God's against you. You've sort of distorted who God is. Maybe you're questioning his goodness or questioning his sovereignty. At least Naomi is, is talking about this. In some sense, it's almost as if she's talking to the townspeople, but also talking to God. And when you read the Psalms, you see all kinds of godly Psalm writers who call out to God and say all kinds of things. Things like, Why don't you answer me, God? How long will you let the wicked prosper, God? Where are you? Why won't you speak to me? Why won't you talk to me? Why won't you answer me? It's not inappropriate to take your lament of your life to God himself. To be honest about it. I think sometimes, unfortunately, in the church, we get the idea that we're supposed to have a stiff upper lip at all times. And when we're suffering and we don't understand where God is and we don't see where God is, we're taught to don't share that with anybody, you know, to God be the glory, you know, all things work together for good. Well, that's true, but it's not inappropriate to express deep lament, deep concern, even complaint, taking it to God. Some of you need to read the Psalms this afternoon and let those be your prayers. Where is God? Why won't he answer? sort of a mystery, I think. Because we can't fully understand what God is up to. And when we get bitter and when we struggle with our relationship with God and we start to doubt his sovereignty or his goodness, we tend not to be able to see clearly what God is actually doing. And I want to take this in three directions based on this text. The first thing I would just, and I've already mentioned it, when Naomi's complaining to God, she's pouring out her heart, so to speak, to the townspeople, but to God. And she says, I went out full and I came back empty. Ruth is there. And oftentimes when we get into a bad situation or a series of trials, it's easy for us not to be able to see what God is actually doing for us in the moment. Ruth is right there. God's provided Ruth. Naomi can't see it. And I think for some of us, what you might want to do this afternoon is to intentionally think about all of the different ways God is providing and has provided in the past, but even in the present, to remind yourself that maybe the answer to your lament to God and your frustration with God, maybe you've got a Ruth right next to you and you just can't see it. That's the first direction I want to take this to. The second direction I want us to take this to is that this is the conundrum, I think, for us. 
is that God oftentimes puts believers in the desert experience like Naomi is in. He sometimes takes things in our life that we are, that are precious to us. He sometimes seems to allow things to be taken from us. He allows enough loss in our life. And what is God trying to do? He's not trying to hurt us. He is trying to get us to wrap our hands more consistently around God plus nothing else. And sometimes he allows difficulties and losses because we have sort of uh, secretly, we believe God, but we believe God because God's provided this, this, and this. And when he takes these things away, he's trying to get us to hold on to God plus nothing else. He's trying to take us to a different level spiritually. And obviously Naomi can't see that. And she can't see that this is exactly what Ruth has done. Ruth has nothing but a bitter mother-in-law. That's all she has, earthly speaking. She's in a foreign country. She's jeopardized. She's vulnerable. She has no means of support, no chance for a husband, no chance for a future, but she's got God. And Naomi can't see that either. And sometimes we can't see that what God is trying to do for us in the wilderness when everything seems to be taken from us is he's trying to get us to set our affections completely on him alone because that is most crucial in our life. I know we talked about spiritual warfare a couple weeks ago. Um, So I reading through screw tape letters again, C.S.S. Lewis' little fictional account of a group of demons and their strategy against believers. And this is one of the demons talking to, talking to another demon about how they're trying to tempt a human being. And, and here's what C.S. Lewis writes, uh, putting the words in the mouth of these fictitious demons. He says, do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him, God, seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. And I think sometimes that's where God has trying to take us into that place where all we really have and all we really think we have is God. And if we could get our hands and arms around that idea, get our hearts around that, is where God wants to bring us because God alone is the only source of contentment, peace, joy, purpose. If you've got God, but nothing else, You don't have any more if you have God and a whole lot of other things. If you've got God plus nothing, that's everything. One more thing about this text is you've got Naomi with her complaint about God and Ruth is right there. Now, I I hesitate to get to the end of the, the book and spoil the ending. Naomi can't see that Ruth has been provided by God for her now. She can't see that Ruth is exhibiting the kind of faith that Naomi needs to you know, express. But what Naomi can't really contemplate is this foreign Moabite daughter-in-law is going to get married 
and have children. And Naomi's going to have grandchildren through her daughter-in-law, miraculously. We'll see that coming up here. And that Ruth and Naomi will be the great, 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 great mothers of David, King David. They will be in the, the, the genealogical line of King David. But of course, King David is in the genealogical line of Jesus. What, what Naomi can't see, that Ruth, this provision of God that she can't see, this example of the faith that she ought to have, is to see that in Ruth, the Moabite will be the great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus himself. The Jesus that will save Naomi from all of her suffering and the main problem she has, again, it's, she's in a terrible situation, but the main problem Naomi has is she needs a relationship with God through, through, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, but her daughter-in-law is going to be in the genealogical line of this. And when that son, the great, 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 great grandson, I'm, I'm, I, I, I didn't, it's, it's, I couldn't count how many great, 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 greats there were. But when Jesus hangs on the cross, this Jesus, this God man, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he, he, he contemplates being separated from God the Father because he's bearing our sin and he's bearing Naomi's sin. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he's all alone on that cross, when he's emptied, so to speak. Jesus' question, Jesus' cry, answers the very cry of Naomi's heart that she expresses at the end of chapter one. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Do not call me Omi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has been dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, I came away empty. And when that great, 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 great grandson Jesus hangs on the cross and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It answers Naomi's cry. Because Jesus did that for us. So that all of our suffering and our sin and our sorrow and all of it could be redeemed in Jesus to answer the deepest cry that Naomi is expressing at the end of chapter one. And of course, that's where we have to get to, the mystery of love, the mystery of God's love. Is it when you wrap your heart and mind around this incredible love that Jesus Christ pours out for us, it gives you all of the perspective you need to deal with your present suffering. Because you know you have a God, no matter what he's given you or taken away in this life. Because he hung on that cross to give you life today, forgiveness, and a life forever. Very difficult and a lot harder to doubt the love of a God who did that for you, for me, for Naomi. And that is why I think it is appropriate for us this morning to celebrate communion together. And so let me pray as we prepare our hearts to do just that. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for your word that teaches us what true love and the costliness of true love is about. I thank you for teaching us
that true love has to be centered in you alone plus nothing. I thank you, Lord, that you show us the mystery of God's love, that even as we suffer and even as we are in deprivation and in deep sorrow and agony, the agony of Jesus Christ on that cross answers our agony in a fundamental way. His question answers our questions because of the great love he poured out for us. Lord, I pray that you prepare us as we celebrate uh, communion. Uh, help us to think about what you've done for us. Think, help us to, to think about what you sacrificed for us. And may we, as we eat, as we eat and drink through the bread and the cup, we would put our gaze back on Jesus Christ alone. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.